But with that, let's go to our, our Bibles. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. And we're going to continue the series that we've started here on the kingdom. That's the, the life and the essence and the culture and the ethos and the experience of God. The kingdom is like blank. Fill in the blank. Because uh, Jesus taught the kingdom constantly. The message of the kingdom of God was Jesus' primary message. He taught it everywhere he went. But it is so fascinating to me when we read the Gospels that even though Jesus' passion was the kingdom, he never gave us a technical definition of what the kingdom is. He, He said that it's inside you. He said, it's all around you. He said, it's accessible to you. You can actually enter into it, but he never actually technically told us what it is. He left it to theologians. So that would be students and teachers of the Bible to come up with a technical definition of what the kingdom of God is. And that actually makes perfect sense because Jesus Christ was the most brilliant person who ever lived. And he understood that when it comes to matters of the heart, too much technicality is dangerous. When it comes to capturing the heart, too much technical explanation is just boring. And when something is boring, it doesn't grip us. And nobody goes pursuing something that's just boring and dull and then pounce on it and absorb it into your soul. We don't do that. And so since Jesus came to awaken the human heart, he came to awaken the soul, he he spoke to us on on a deeper level. Um, I heard Rick Warren talk to a group of pastors once, and he said, it is a sin to bore people with the gospel. (laughs) Why? Because if I bore you with it, you won't want it. Technical definitions almost never do justice to a thing. I mean, for instance... Um, Think about the technical definition for a friend. The dictionary definition of a friend is a person whom you know and with whom you share a bond of mutual affection. And that's not a bad definition. A bond of mutual affection is a wonderful thing. But but compare that to the way C.S. Lewis described friendship. Lewis wrote these words. He said, true friendship is born at the moment that one person says to another, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. It it, it speaks to a different heart level, doesn't it? Do you remember that episode from The Office? When Jim and Dwight were decorating uh, for Kelly Kapoor's birthday party? And Dwight hangs a sign that says, it is your birthday. And Jim is like, what? What is that? There's no heart in that. There's no, there's no emotion in that. Um, I got an email last week from a doctoral student who was asking for my feedback on a dissertation idea. And his concept was so technical um, that I could barely read it, let alone understand it. Can I read it to you? And um, I'm not mocking him in case he's watching this online. I, I'm not mocking. You're going to see as I read this how, how smart this guy is. But, but, but listen to these words. My proposal is to show 
how the seminary training has transitioned from a primarily residential full-time undertaking to a project assumed by individuals in a multiplicity of life stages and in less traditional and less residency-oriented formats. The burgeoning modality of competency-based theological education may offer an alternate approach to traditional face-to-face -face or online model seminary training. I want to do a mixed method study to consider best possible practices in the area of spiritual formation in the context of seminary-level competency-based theological education. I will then investigate that by utilizing a biblical theological framework. Best practices of online graduate-level ministerial training could possibly be presented in such a way that the role of the faculty, the objectives of the classroom, and the purpose of the institution are focused more effectively on the formation of students as ministers of the Word of God. Can you give me some advice? <laughs> <laughs> And after I read it six times to understand it, I realized it's actually a really great concept. This is actually a very needed theme to pursue. And yet, if, if the language always stays at that level, this will never be more than an academic paper. In the field of nonfiction writing, there's two kinds of writing. There's academic and popular and popular writing is not less smart than academic. Popular writing takes the essence of the academic and translates it into the language of the heart so that people can grab a hold of it and, 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 and master it. So Jesus' message of the kingdom, getting people into the life of God was his absolute passion. And so because of that, he never said, okay, gang, take out your notebooks. Write down this definition. No. He always said things like, let me tell you a story. And in Matthew chapter 13, 24, if you're there, Jesus told them another story. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Verse 28, an enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Wow. The kingdom of God is like contested ground. In this story, there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. And unfortunately, the good guy and the bad guy don't stay separate all the time. They don't keep their distance and, and give each other space and just peacefully coexist. Sometimes in the kingdom, there's a clash. Sometimes there's a conflict in the kingdom. And sometimes in the kingdom, the bad guy waits until the good guy's asleep, and then the bad guy prowls around the good guy's field and plants some destructive seed. Do you ever feel like that's happened in your story? Jesus actually, a little bit later, will apply this story to the, the state of things at the end times. But this applies to all of our times. When you think back over your history, can you see any moments or any, any things that happened to you where, where, where all you can say is, an enemy must have done this? You know, 
I have sown some regrettable seed in my field. I have planted things in my life and I've done things in my life that produced harvests that I wish I never had to reap. And yet, not all of the trauma that I have experienced has been my fault. Not every crop that came up in my life was planted there by me. And I'll give you a delicate example of, of, of something that I encountered when I was a little child that, that wasn't my fault. And this will be a little bit of, a, of an uncomfortable illustration, but I think the discomfort of this illustration will actually reinforce my point and the point that Jesus is making. Um, when I was a very small boy, I got exposed to pornography by a babysitter. And by the way, um, we need to stay so close to our kids with their online viewing. And I know that we all know that, but it is crazy what our kids have access to through online platforms. Um, it, it, the, the world that our kids are living in is so different than anything that we can relate to, even though we're a part of that world. In fact, if you think about it, um, technology advanced so slowly historically, up until our recent industrial and then technological revolutions, there were thousands of generations where technology advanced so slowly that there was virtually no difference from generation to generation. In fact, the world of Abraham was almost exactly the same as the world of Jesus in many ways, even though 2,000 years separate them. But think about what's happened in our world in the last 100 years. Um, the, 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 our, our kids who will never know a life without an online reality are experiencing something so different from us. And I tell you what, I am so glad I did not grow up with the World Wide Web in my back pocket. But I lived in a small rural town in eastern Washington, went to a great church, actually went to a Christian school years before there was an internet. And yet, even though I could not have been more sheltered, a babysitter showed me a magazine. A little later, I was playing hide-and-seek with my friends, and I was in my friend's basement, and I found this little corner to hide in, and there was a pile of magazines. It was his grandfather's subscription. A little later, we were, some friends and I, we were playing Robin Hood in the forest. We lived up against hundreds of acres of national forest. We had wooden swords. We had quarter staves and bows and arrows, and we, were, we went exploring deep into the forest, and we found this abandoned uh, home, dilapidated. Nobody had been there for years, and so what do you do? You go inside, and you check it out, and we went inside this house, and we're looking around. There's a pile of magazines there. Um, we looked at them, and then we felt so guilty, we burned them in a fireplace and never told our parents, although... I guess I'm telling my mom right now in the, in the live stream. I didn't realize that. I'm, so we'll, we'll talk later, mom. <laughs> I, I was riding bikes with a friend after that, and this friend later, he says to me, hey, you'll never guess what I, I found in this barn near our house. And of course, you can guess what he found. I never went looking for that stuff. In, in fact, at that time, at that young age, and in that time, if I had gone looking for that, I would never have been able to find it. And yet somehow it confronted me. And so is that a coincidence? Is that just a common story that happens to a lot of little boys and a lot of little girls? Maybe. I hope not, but, but probably increasingly so. 
It might be a coincidence, or it might also be a, a time to say, an enemy has been at work here. To be so sheltered and so protected and so random, Jesus did say that there's a thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. So it is possible that there was an enemy at work to rob some innocence or to cut a childhood short. Sometimes the rakes in the grass were set there by an enemy. Can you think of any similar stories in your life? Um, any, any times when you were exposed to something or something happened that wasn't your fault? See, my story is actually, is actually pretty tame. It's not nearly as bad as other people's story. My story is just some kids stumbling across some magazines. I, I know people who have been actually exploited, actually harmed, or traumatized by another person. And isn't it fascinating when, when someone is victimized or abused, they never grow up thinking an enemy did this to me. When a child is harmed by someone else, they never grow up thinking, an enemy has been at work to cut my destiny short before I was strong and big and powerful. No, they, they internalize it. And they embrace this message of the weeds. Um, there's a fascinating passage in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel had just come out of Egypt. In Exodus 17, Israel is a baby nation. They're, they're so fresh out of Egypt, Moses hasn't even gone to Mount Sinai yet. They don't even have the Ten Commandments yet. It's the beginning of their time as a nation, and they get attacked in their infancy by an army of Amalekites. It was their first battle, and God didn't like it. Nobody likes it when somebody attacks their kids when their kids are young. And, and listen to these words in Exodus 17, 14. God empowered Joshua to win this battle. And so after the battle, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, and he called that place the Lord is my banner, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. In a literal sense, this was true for Israel. Um, they fought the Amal Amalekites generation after generation. In fact, several hundred years later, the prophet Samuel said these words to King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. God hadn't forgotten what the Amalekites did to Israel when they were young, and he hasn't forgotten what's happened to you when you were young. In a spiritual sense, Amalek is still attacking the generations. And God's promise to crush that spirit in every generation is also still in effect. So where did Amalek attack you? Where did something come against you in your youth? Where did an enemy try to sow something in your field that wasn't your fault? You know, maybe you were supposed to be protected and you were rejected. 
Maybe you had a, a, a gentle personality and a tender heart and, and somebody bullied you for it. Maybe, maybe it was a word that got planted. Somebody said, you're too needy. And you weren't too needy. You were asking for exactly what was reasonable and appropriate. But it planted something in you. Maybe you took perfect care of your health. Maybe you didn't have any, any vices with your eating or your drinking. You, you were uh, conscientious of how you took care of yourself, but you still got sick. And, and listen, I know that so, some of these things are just life. I know that. We can't blame everything on something spiritual. Um, we're human. Our world is broken. If it rains on planet Earth, everybody gets wet. And I get that. But, but I think there are times in our lives where the only explanation for what's growing in the field is that an enemy has done this. And did you notice in the story that sometimes it takes a little while for the fruit to manifest? See, Jesus could have been a psychologist. Jesus understood that sometimes it takes a while before the bad things that are planted actually produce fruit. In this story, nobody had any idea that something bad got planted in the field until the harvest started coming up. And then they were like, hold on a second, that doesn't look right. Wait a minute, something seems off in this area. I, I don't get it. And then they realized, wait, wait a minute, we didn't plant that. That's not what we sowed in this field. And, and so the servants, quite logically, wanted to go rip up all the bad seed. They, they said, do you want us to go and pull them up? And the good guy says, No. We didn't do this, and this was not our fault, but it is part of our story now. And this is something we're going to have to process now. And, and we don't want to cause unnecessary damage by just, just, just traipsing through the field. So we're, we're going to wait until the right time to deal with this. You know, it's interesting in human recovery that some of our very unhealthy practices, like Stuffing our emotions, you know, avoiding conflict, I'm living in denial. Some of those unhealthy practices were actually coping mechanisms that helped us survive a part of our life. Sometimes the, 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 the dysfunctional things that we know are not good were necessary to help us get through that point in time. When you're going through the crisis of your life, you can't perfectly deal with everything at once. In fact, they even say that the fracturing of the human personality is a saving technique. And yet, there comes a time when the things that saved us early on become dysfunctional later on. If you needed to be defensive and guarded and self-protective to survive something, that's good. But if time has passed and you're not in that season and you're still guarded and self-protective and defensive, that's going to produce a whole different crop of damage in your life. The kingdom is like contested ground. There's an enemy that's been snooping around your field and sowing some things in your life. Um, and some people carry shame for that. And they live their life ashamed of something that was never actually even put there by them. The kingdom is like contested ground. But it's also the place where there's a separation between the wheat and the weeds. And those things get put in their proper place. And contested ground in the kingdom of God also becomes 
healing ground. One more time, verse 30 says, Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my house. Let me, let me start our descent with three thoughts today. Number one, are you guys with me? I'm so jealous sometimes of Donald Rucker. <laughs> He's so fun. I'm going to be funner from now on. But is that not a word? More fun. Three thoughts. Number one, some of the weeds in your field are your fault. You have planted some things. I have planted some things in my life that were not good and that, that, that caused something there to grow that never should have been there. And you know what? This actually becomes kind of confusing for people when they're trying to change their lives. Sometimes I watch people try and change their lives and they start doing something good and right, but all these bad things keep popping up around them. And, and I realize they don't understand that every action is a seed. Every word is a seed, and every seed produces a harvest. I especially see this in couples counseling. Sometimes one of the partners in a relationship finally changes. And so it should be an amazing thing because they're finally changing. They're doing the right stuff, but bad fruit keeps popping up and they, they lose heart until they realize, oh, I get it. Everything I sowed last decade and last year and last week is still producing fruit. I am doing the right thing now. I am planting the good stuff now, but I'm just going to have to be patient and let this crop come up and die. And if I don't keep sowing into that, there won't be any more of those harvests. That make sense? So, so if, if you have planted something bad in your field, say you're sorry, repent, start sowing the good stuff that you want to grow, and be patient. And a new harvest will eventually overtake the old. That's number one. Some of the weeds in our field are our fault. Uh, number two, though, and this is the message, of course, some of the weeds in your field are not your fault. And so by faith and with conviction, we need to reject whatever label the bad seed planted over our life. Whatever label you've carried over something that wasn't your fault needs to be broken in the name of Jesus Christ, you are not damaged goods. It was not your fault. I think one of the best movie scenes for me of all time was in that old film, Goodwill Hunting. I think it was Matt Damon's first movie. And in that film, Damon plays a brilliant but angry and kind of broken young man. And Robin Williams is his, is his weathered older mentor. And there's a scene near the end of the movie where they're in William's office, and William's character says to him, son, it wasn't your fault. And Damon's character kind of laughs, and he goes, I know, I know, it wasn't my fault. And William said, no, it wasn't your fault. And Damon got a little bit more intense, and he goes, I know, it wasn't my fault. And William said, it wasn't your fault. And he freaks out. Starts throwing things, cussing, kicking, throwing a fit in the office, and Williams leaned in again, and he said, son, it wasn't your fault. And then he just breaks, 
falls into Robin Williams' arms, and he's just sobbing, and it's this deep, guttural, uh, healing cry where the shame gets cried out of him and the weight gets cried out of him. Some of the weeds in your field are not your fault. And this sounds really heavy, and it sounds like I'm just talking about abusive things, but it's not just, it's not just traditional abuse stuff. If that's there, oh, let's get some healing. Let's find the freedom. But this could be, this could be a, a, a word. It could be, it could be a label. It could be something you were called. It could be something that happened to you that created an issue that you, you know, never thought you would struggle with. Um, but number three, there comes a time where you have to deal with the weeds. Whether it was your fault or not, there comes a time when you have to deal with the weeds. Your story made you who you are today. So the good, the bad, and the ugly, that's the backdrop that made you who you are. Um, and it's all worked together to make you something. And you're amazing, and you're powerful, and you're strong, and you're good. Um, you're a survivor. But the kingdom of God is the place where survivors don't just survive, they become overcomers. I think um, one of the reasons I love AIM so much, I love Agape International Missions and their, their efforts to rescue girls from human trafficking, I love the ministry so much because the, the, the constant cycle of this ministry is that survivors become overcomers who then become advocates. They don't just get out and get healed. They don't just overcome. They actually, most of these girls that they rescue go on to become rescuers and healers for someone else. Um, the, the, that's the kingdom of God. Um, your wound usually occurs in the area of your greatest potential. The most powerful testimonies, the most amazing ministries emerge out of healed trauma. And healed people become healers. So how do you know if it's time? In the story, they wanted to deal with it right now, and, and the good guy said, no, let's wait. How do you know? Well, I think you know it's time to go after your stuff for a couple of ways. Number one, if yesterday's coping mechanism has become today's dysfunction, it's time. If, if your form of communicating and living that helped you survive is now damaging your relationships, it's time to say, okay, thank you for that tool. I've got to get more healthy. If you feel like you're constantly being strangled, remember the, the wheat, the weeds were choking the wheat. If you're being strangled by last year's or last era's issues, it's time to find some healing and say, okay, I've got to deal with this. Or if the Holy Spirit is telling you that it's time. Did, did you notice in the story that it was the good guy that said, at the time of the harvest, I will tell the harvesters. So if you have sensed the Holy Spirit stirring you or pushing you toward, I, I, should, I should make an appointment. I should, I should see somebody. I should go after this in my life. Trust that timing. The Holy Spirit's timing is always right. Agreed? Um, our mission here at Grace is to follow Jesus, to model love, and to be a voice of hope for the world. That's what we're all about at Grace. We're, 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 we want to be a people who live by faith. That means living with Jesus as our magnificent obsession. And we want to be a people who model love and who become a voice of hope for the world. And listen, those kinds of people become those people on contested ground 
When the kingdom of God works in their life and begins to separate them from the past and heal them in the very area where they took the deepest wound. The most powerful lives are the lives that emerge from brokenness or trauma or a sowing that wasn't their fault. And this, the, the kingdom turns contested ground into healing ground. Um, in, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, there's a familiar verse where it says that, that the iniquity of us all was laid on Jesus. You've heard that before? But, but you know what? Um, I, I think when we hear that verse sometimes, the iniquity of us all was laid on him, I think we sometimes think of it as just a, a two-person transaction. All of my iniquity was laid on him, and since he absorbed it, I get to be forgiven. And that's awesome, and that's part of it, but that's not exactly what the verse says. The verse says, the iniquity of us all was laid on him, which means the twisted, sinful iniquity of the person who hurt us was placed on him. And that doesn't mean that they're off the hook. That means that he can deal with what they did to us. It means the effects of that trauma was absorbed in him so he can release us from the trauma. Uh, the, your abuser doesn't get off the hook. The person who, who damaged you doesn't get to go free. Sure, God can restore them, but he will deal with them. That's part of the story. We're going to tie these up and we're going to burn this bad seed. And we're going to bring the other into the house. There's healing. There's forgiveness. There's new beginnings. The starting point is to get as close to the one who has borne the iniquity as possible. So why don't you stand with me?